0: Good morning, church family. Good morning, everyone. Today's sermon text, Romans 7, 1 through 6, that can be found on page 943 in your Pew Bible. I'd encourage you to follow along with us today. Your own copy of God's word or the Pew Bible page 943, Romans 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those and not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of God.
1: Well, this morning we are going to be thinking about the law and the Christian's relationship to the law. Yet again, we're in Romans seven, one to seven. We know that when God gave the law to Israel, it was considered to be something that was good. Uh, But by the time we get to Paul's day, uh, we understand that many Jews looked at the law as having a kind of function where it would curb sin it would cause people to sin less Uh, they really thought that they could keep the law and live a a fruitful uh, life apart from relationship with god Uh, there was that tendency to sort of see the law as being separate from relationship with god And that really is the heart of legalism. It's trusting your ability to keep the law and bring about a blessed life apart from utter dependence on God. When you are are becoming a Christian, you are beginning your journey with God by confessing that you are utterly dependent on Him. And from that day for the rest of eternity, you are continuously confessing your deep, need of Jesus Christ. You need him desperately if you're going to obey him. You need him desperately if you're going to take pleasure in the things for which he has created you, because apart from him, you know you have no good thing. Now, I used to think of legalism as being kind of on the opposite end of antinomianism, but as I've walked with Christ and I've had a number of different experiences um, I've been forced to sort of reassess the nature of the relationship of this idea that we can please God through the law apart from relationship with him and on the other hand thinking that if we are in relationship with God then we can kind of live however we want uh... now one reason that our experience that has caused me to to make sure I really understand the nature of the way the law works is uh, I once had uh, an experience with a woman who I, I knew to be uh, very much concerned with the law and she was very uh, some might even say overly concerned with it legalistic uh, not looking to be obedient for what the law necessarily said but even going beyond that uh, she was someone who really valued modesty and modesty is a good and God glorifying thing right it's a good thing to be modest. Good to amen? Good to be modest, right? Okay, somebody's like, I oh, don't know, I'm not dressed right today. Yes, <laughs> modesty is a good thing. We're not against modesty, we're for it. Um, but it can become a, a bad thing if you're starting to put on requirements that, that aren't biblical. And I, I remember she used to even sometimes go through the lobby and adjust people's clothes to make sure they were put just right. What was fascinating to me though was uh, later um, this woman confessed to the, the reality that she actually had simultaneously been involved in a relationship online and a chat room uh, for a popular zombie show. It gets weirder. But in, in the midst of that, uh, she was considering leaving her family uh, through all of this. Now, the, the thing that really just gripped me is I'm, I'm sitting there pastorally and even just as a Christian trying to understand like, How can you be so concerned with the law and and it seems so like you've got everything together and you're making sure everybody else has got things together and you have these high standards that are above everyone else and yet simultaneously you you are engaged in the heart and in in the, the chat room of the privacy of your life of sinning in ways that should not be even talked about. And how do those things go together? Living as though you can live however you want in private and yet simultaneously, publicly being one who is pressing a legal standard that goes beyond your peers. Well, I believe that Paul, as he is talking about the nature of the way that the law works, gives us a window into how these realities can exist. See, the law is powerless, if we read through the Scriptures, to change the desires of the human heart. It cannot bring about the internal change that all of us, as fallen unregenerate sinners need apart from Christ. The law is not bad. People are bad. We love sin left to ourselves. See, contrary to many Jews of Paul's day, Paul's been arguing in Romans that the law does not actually curb sin. No, it actually aids and abets sin. He, he said in 320 that The law stirs up the consciousness of sin that the law in verse 415 brings wrath that in 520 it increases the trespass and today we'll see that it actually excites a desire for sin in other words deliverance from sin and death meant that humanity also needed to be rescued from bondage to the law it it showed us our desperate need of a heart change now here again, Paul is nuancing the gospel as he's been doing throughout. He does not give anyone permission to sin. You'll remember in Romans six fifteen to 23, he just said that being under the law does not give you permission to sin. If you've been freed from the law, that doesn't mean that you've been freed to sin, you've been freed to Christ, to obey Christ. Well, here in Romans 7, 1 to 7, Paul is flipping that argument on its head that's been leveled against him. This argument that if, Paul, if you start telling people they're free from being bound to the law, then they'll just start sinning all over the place. Well, in Romans 7, 1 to 7, Paul flips that argument on its head saying that you had to be freed from the law to be rescued from sin and death, that you might be united to Christ. Now our big idea this morning is this, and you can write this down if you take notes. It is this, it's Christian. You, know, you are no longer bound by the law. You belong to Jesus Christ. You're no longer bound to the law. You, are, you belong to Jesus Christ. Now, you see this first in verse 1, where we find the Mosaic law's binding ends at death. This is the statement that he makes that he's going to be addressing through our verses. Now, here again, you'll notice that familiar phrase, or do you not... No, which is paul's way of saying of course you know this you know this this is part of something that we all agree on and look what he says again in verse one of chapter seven he says this or do you not know brothers for i am speaking to those who know the law that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives now paul addresses brothers who know the law here now depending on the context This word for law can mean different things Uh, some have taken it to mean the the natural law under which all humanity finds himself others have seen this as speaking of roman law Uh, others talk about a, a general kind of law or the law of moses or the law of christ but again paul's been anticipating questions as he's gone step by step through the gospel and i believe here paul has already been talking about the law of Moses in the last two chapters, and it seems that the law of Moses is still in view. For instance, you'll remember in Romans 5.20, Paul said the law came in to increase the trespass. And, and then in Romans 6.14 and 15, you'll remember that he told us that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. But there in those, that same section, he said, you are not under the law, but under grace. And if you look to Romans 7.7, 7, you'll notice that just after our verses today, he actually quotes the ninth commandment not to covet. And so it seems like the Mosaic law is what he's been dealing with and what he's continuing to speak of. So I take it that that's what Paul is still focused on here, the Mosaic law that stood at the center of the Mosaic covenant of Israel. But you still might be asking yourself, okay, I know what law he's talking about, but who is he addressing? Who's he speaking to? Who are these brothers who, know the law of Moses. Some have said that this is really just talking about Jewish Christians who had that relationship with the law prior to becoming Christians. Uh, You'll remember that it was a dicey situation in Rome. Uh, The church had begun likely with Jewish Christians who were later expelled by Claudius out of Rome. Uh, They were later allowed to come back in and as they came in Uh, They entered a church that now was mostly non-Jews, and there was all kinds of friction that existed between the two. Uh, Some think that Paul here is just speaking to Jews. Those are the brothers who know the law. But don't miss this. I think it's strange to think that Paul is thinking of ethnically Jewish Christians as the only ones who knew the Old Testament and the law. And that non-Jewish Christians from the nations who didn't, they were those who didn't spend time learning the Old Testament because they had Jesus and the Holy Spirit, as though the Old Testament didn't matter to them. No, many early Gentile Christians were actually God-fearers. They were those who actually had sympathies for Judaism, uh, even though they didn't become converts. They were, uh, they, they, they followed and, and studied and understood the beliefs of Judaism. Additionally, we know that Jesus taught others about himself as a fulfillment of all that the Old Testament anticipated in Luke 24. In other words, when Jesus is raised from the dead, the first thing he does is teach them the Old Testament and how it points to him. So Jesus thought the Old Testament was extremely important for God's people from the get-go. And let's not remember another example, an example from the church in Ephesus where Timothy, a young pastor was, Paul sent him there to set the church in order in 1 Timothy. And you'll remember that in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, Timothy, who was a pastor of an ethnically and spiritually diverse congregation in Ephesus, lots of different peoples there. It was a place where they all came together. And here in this church, they had come to Christ and united around him. And in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, he says this, all Scripture is God-breathed. It is profitable profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, and the training in righteousness that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, a couple of things that are important there. One, he is speaking to a diverse, an ethnically diverse church. So there are people from the nations that are here that he is speaking to as a collective. Second, he tells them that all scripture. Now in this context, scripture at least means the Old Testament. And he is telling Timothy, this young pastor, what your ethnically diverse church needs is to understand the Old Testament and how all of it is relevant for their lives. So Christians study God's Word. All Christians, both Old and New Testaments. So I think that Paul here likely in Romans is speaking to all of the Christians who were gathered there who understand God's law. The question at hand here, though, is how does this relate to the Mosaic law? Now that they are not under the law but under grace, how does the Christian relate to this Mosaic law? Well, Paul makes a statement that he's going to illustrate in verses 2 to 3, and then he's going to explain it in verses 4 to 6. He says the law is binding as long as he lives— this person. Now this word for binding is, is interesting. It comes from a word that means to, to rule over. It can have a, a positive, a neutral, but often it's a, a pejorative or negative meaning. And here Paul has already said that the resurrection of Christ from the dead shows that death no longer rules over Christ in Romans 6:9. That sin will no longer rule over Christians since they are not under the law but under grace in Romans 6:14. And here, the law no longer rules over Christians. But what does he mean by that? Well, Paul offers this illustration in verses 2 to 3. He says, the marriage covenant illustrates how death frees Christians from the law. Verses 2 to 3. Now, you'll notice there what Paul says about marriage. He says this. He says, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. If she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, Paul uses this illustration, I think, from a, a Jewish background, a Jewish understanding of the laws concerning marriage, like. The kinds of things that you'll read about in Deuteronomy 20, uh, 24. Now, the word for marriage here appears six times in the Greek version of the Old Testament for marriage. And so it, it seems that Paul has an understanding of, of Jewish marriage in view. And this imagery really does fit how Jews understood marriage. In a Jewish understanding of marriage, wives did not have a right to divorce their husbands while husbands had certain reasons they could divorce their wives. And if a wife divorced her husband and lived with another man before that husband died, she was considered to be an adulteress. But if her husband died, she was released from the law of marriage in verse two and freed from that law to marry another man in verse three and would not be an adulteress. That's the illustration. Now, let me just make a couple of points about this illustration. I think it's pretty straightforward, but we need to make a couple of clarifications just to protect us as we move forward into the way that he's going to explain this being played out. First, Paul's main point here is not to teach about marriage and divorce. Does that make sense? This is an illustration, an illustration of his main point, which is not marriage and divorce. So there are other reasons that we are given throughout the New Testament for divorce. You'll remember in Matthew 5, Jesus talks about sexual sin as one reason for divorce. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 7, Paul himself mentions abandonment as another reason for uh, a separation uh, that is is legal and, and free. Now, I could go on, but my point here is simply to highlight that Paul's using illustration to get to his main point, and his main point is not to fully articulate a Christian ethic about marriage and divorce. Remarriage. Now, I only say that because there are some who, when they read this, develop their whole theology of divorce and remarriage on this verse, and they don't look at the full context and scope of what the New Testament says. And that's not a right way to read our Bibles. It is part, this verse, part of the conversation, but it is not the whole conversation. Second, illustrations, analogies, and metaphors like these, they always break down, right? We all know this. I mean, just by way of illustration, imagine that one day I'm in the office and Pastor Malachi comes in and he's like, man, I am as hungry as a horse. And I'm like, no problem, I'm gonna call up Uber Eats. Let me get you a bale of hay. He's like, well, wait a minute. That is not what I meant by I'm as hungry as a horse, right? Uh, Oh, I'm sorry, so you're gonna eat like on all fours? No, that's not what I'm talking about, right? No, what he's talking about is like, he's just really hungry, horses are really hungry, they're bigger, you get it. If you start trying to tease it out further than that, it starts to get weird. It doesn't mean the illustration was bad, it just means that it's not meant to do what you're trying to do with it. And so we want to be really careful with these two guardrails in mind, that as we read the way that Paul is unpacking this, that we're not trying to like make connections where they're not clear connections. So with these two guardrails in mind, we can highlight the aspect of this illustration that seems clear. At this point, a woman is bound by law to her husband. If he dies, she is free from her legal, law-abiding marriage to him to wed another. Now, let's look at how Paul develops this in verses four to six. Third, Christians belong to Christ, not the law. Christians belong to Christ, not the law. Verse 4 provides Paul's conclusion to this illustration. While well, verses 5 to 6 explain verse 4's meaning further. So, look at verse 4 again. Here's what he says Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So, Notice here in verse 4 that Christians are married to Christ, and I'll explain how we get there. Now, Paul's been unpacking the new reality that those who have been justified by grace alone through faith alone enjoy. We are no longer under sin, no longer under death, no longer bound to the law. We are in Christ. We are under grace. We are under the law of Christ. So faith unites the Christian to Jesus' death on the cross such that Romans 6-2 says that we have died to sin with Christ. We no longer live under the dominion of sin and death. We now live under the reign of grace and eternal life. There has been a drastic change in our reality, our identity, our eternity through faith in Christ. Everything has changed. See, Paul, I believe here, is describing that shift from the Mosaic Covenant that God made with Israel, with its Mosaic Law, to the New Covenant that Jesus Christ has ushered in for us. So when Jesus Christ arrived, He fulfilled all righteousness. He obeyed the law in every single way. Every thought, every deed, every action, all was done to the glory of God. He never disobeyed God. He never did anything that was unrighteous, such that when he died on the cross for us, that perfect righteousness was credited to our accounts. So his death and resurrection marked a decisive shift in redemptive history, such that humanity is no longer divided between physical Israel and the Gentiles who lived outside of that covenant with God. Instead, now, after the cross, all of humanity is divided between God's people who belong to Jesus Christ and those who don't. This morning, there are two kinds of people here. Those who belong to Jesus and those who do not. And a good question to ask yourself right now is, am I one of the people who belong to Christ or am I not? And that, that answer, the way that you answer that question, matters for everything. See, Christ satisfied the laws, demands, for every person who puts their faith in him through his perfectly righteous life and sacrificial death on our behalf. Now, did you catch the purpose for which Jesus died for you? He tells us right there in verse four, it's so that you may belong to another, another than the law, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now, this language that you see there of belonging to another, Speaking of that transition from belonging or being bound to the law to belonging to Jesus is language that he just used in verse three. Speaking of the woman, she who marries another, same language that describes here belonging to another. That is to say that Christians have been freed from the law which condemns to a new husband who delivers, nourishes, and protects them It is the bride, the church. So right relationship with God is not achieved through keeping the law, but through being wed to Jesus through faith. It may look like Paul adds a second purpose at the end of verse four, where he says, in order that we may produce fruit or bear fruit for God. But those two things, I believe are really one thing. Marriage to Christ and fruit bearing are inseparably bound together. When you put your faith in Jesus, you belong to Him. You are united with Him. You are bound to Him. You are married to Christ and inherit every spiritual blessing from Him, including eternal life. And that life is already flowing in and through you in part, not fully as it shall, but in part. And you will, we are promised, bear fruit for God that is fruit that glorifies His name if you have truly put your faith in Christ. If you believe in Jesus, you will bear fruit to the glory of his name. I mean, what a dramatic shift. We know that apart from Christ, we cannot please God. But in Christ, we can live a fruitful life where Jesus tastes and says, this is sweet and this is good. God finds delight in his people who bear his name, who are united to his son, Jesus Christ. So if we're united to the good root, Jesus Christ, we will produce the sweet fruit of an increasingly holy life. You will notice that the fruits of the Spirit in your life, like love, joy, peace, kindness, those things will grow as you walk with Christ. You will look less like the flesh and more like Jesus. It's Kind of like one of those couples where they get married and they look different. Then after a while, you start to say, you know, they kind of look alike. They act alike. They like the same things. They have the same mannerisms. It's because that's what unity does. It, It shapes and transforms you. And that's what unity to Christ does. So much of that fruit begins with new desires and values, which evidence the presence of the Holy Spirit. We are no longer living for those sinful desires as much, right, we're still fighting it, not as much, but we more and more are beginning to live for the pleasure of God, something that is happening on the inside. It's an inside job that the new covenant brings in. It's not external law that says, do this and you'll be accepted, but we we find out we can't do that. It's something on the inside that is changing and shaping us. And if those things are lacking, if we don't sense that there has been a change in our our desires to some degree, then it should cause us to ask if we have truly put our faith in Christ, who promises to give us His Spirit and promises to change and transform and shape us. See, Paul says that, that marriage that we have with Christ, that union that we have with Him, it'll bear sweet fruit. Paul says that Christians are no longer under the rule of Mosaic law, they are under the rule of Christ. Now, Paul goes on in verses five to six to explain further what he's talking about. Uh, notice that in verses five to six, he is again contrasting that being under, in the spirit and under the, the letter of the law. He's contrasting spirit and letter again, showing that dramatic shift in redemptive history. Now, if you scan down to verse six, you'll notice that he says, He ends it there with this this phrase, the written code. I just want to to highlight that the word that actually translates that is actually letter. It's a word for letter. And it's, it's here that Paul, again, is contrasting the letter with the Spirit. A contrast that is signaling that redemptive historical shift from the days of the Mosaic covenant to the new covenant that Christ has brought to us. The letter, if you read through the the New Testament, you'll find that it's often associated with the law, with that which is written on stone tablets, circumcision of the flesh, that which is old, and that which is related to death. But the Spirit, it speaks of that new covenant that has been ushered in with Christ that is written on tablets of flesh. It speaks of freedom from sin. A circumcision of the heart, newness, and life. And don't miss what Paul's doing here. Paul's showing how superior what we have in Christ is to what the Jews have. Being married to Christ is so much better than being under the law. The law condemned an unregenerate people who could not please God left to themselves. But marriage to Christ not only delivered them from condemnation, it credited them with the very righteousness of Christ. And it made them, who were living for the fruit of death, those who could actually bear fruit to the glory of God. He gave them his spirit to bear that sweet fruit of righteousness in their lives, evidencing the presence of that eternal life in the here and now. Not just in the future, but now. So some Jews, you'll remember, seem to have been arguing that Paul was preaching freedom from the law, and that it would lead to more sin if you were to preach freedom from the law. Because if you did that, then you wouldn't have the law to curb sin, right? But Paul flips this argument on its head in verse five, and he says this, look what he says. He explains, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions are roused by the law. We're at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Do you catch what he's saying? Sinful passions. Those desires that you have for things that you know are clearly disobedient to God. Wanting to steal people's stuff. Their car, their wives. Wanting bad to come to people. Being jealous. Wanting to have what people have just so that they don't have it and you do. Those sinful desires that that are aroused in our hearts, those things that some of us feel and fight and others feel and don't want others to know about, those things, those desires, he says they were not squelched, they were not hindered or curbed by the law. No, the law actually did the opposite. It aroused sinful passions of those under the law. It's kind of like a tiger in a cage, right? You ever gone up to a tiger in a cage and like started messing with them and seen them get irritated and take a swipe at you? By the way, that's what kittens would do if they were bigger. That's why I don't like cats. (laughs) That's what sin does. You know, we, we have a sinful desire that, that causes us to want to take a swat at others. We are self seeking by nature rather than self giving. And he says here, the law is arousing that sinful desire in us, irritating it, instigating it, getting it fired up. So there really is something seductive about forbidden fruit to the flesh, isn't there? We just read the Bible. It doesn't it begin with a story about someone who was promised that they could have fruit of any tree in the garden, a big garden, the best trees, untainted by sin, what tree did they want, though, the one they couldn't have? For some reason, they believed that that's where the real sweet fruit was and that God was trying to keep it from them. Just ask Eve. She wanted the fruit of that tree. And she didn't want the fruit of that tree because God was keeping the best fruit from her. Now she wanted the fruit of that tree because there was a law and a rule and an excited a desire that was in her. It reminds me of the story of Augustine and his confessions. Uh, he tells this story, Augustine, and he is talking about his friends and how they were out one day and they were stealing pears. And, and they would steal them and eat them and then one day they just stole them and they decided they didn't really like eating them anymore and so they just threw them to the hogs to eat. And later he was reflecting back on the story and he said, you know, I, I realized one day that the reason that I was stealing those pears was not because I liked the sweetness of the pears. It's because I liked sin." I liked stealing pears. It was the sin that that I loved, not the pears. See, he loved to break God's law, something in him that was broken. The law revealed that. The letter of the law could not change an unregenerate person. We find that all throughout the Old Testament, only the Holy Spirit can change the person's heart. And that's contrary to a popular Jewish belief that the law suppresses sin. Paul says the law actually arouses it if you are apart from Christ. And simple desire gave birth to the works of the members of their bodies bearing fruit for death. They had fruit for death prior to Christ, but Christ gave them the Spirit so that they could bear fruit to the glory of God. What kind of fruit are you bearing this morning? Is it fruit that is characterized by the good and sweetness of of God's will for your life? Are you living for a kind of fruit that only leads to death? Are you ready to meet your maker? Are you ready for that day? Well, Paul, I believe likely got this understanding of the nature of the law just from reading his Bible, the Old Testament. In fact, uh, recently I've been working through Judges on a project. And Judges is a book that's interesting because there's this cycle that's kind of repeated again and again and again. The problem is it kind of gets worse and worse as you read through the book, until it kind of eventually sort of begins to unfray and just comes undone to the point that you're like, what even is the point of this gross story? And the cycle is this, people sin against God. God sends punishment. People don't like punishment, so they cry out to God. So God delivers them, and then you just wash and repeat. See, they had the law. But the law could not curb the cycle of sin. They needed something greater. And that something greater is Jesus Christ, the ultimate deliverer. Jesus. Jesus, the one who is God who saves. See, the law did not make God's people holier. They just got worse and worse. So don't miss this. The law, the law is not bad in and of itself. Unregenerate hearts are bad. Hearts that long for the sweetness of forbidden fruit are bad. The flesh is self-seeking, not the spirit that's why god promised a new and better covenant in the days of the prophets that covenant that ezekiel speaks of in ezekiel 36 27. it's there that he says and i will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules do you see that there is coming a day where i will give you my spirit And you will obey, not because an outward law on stone tablets tells you to, but because your heart tells you that it is right and sweet and good. You will trust God. You will trust Christ. You will see that you were made for someone greater than yourself, that you were made for God, that you were made for Christ who has come as your great husband. He is the one who has come to deliver you, to save you from sin, death, and all that the law tells you you're guilty of, to free you from condemnation, to give you salvation, to give you the promise of a future and a hope. Rather than God's wrath, he promises you an eternity with God, enjoying eternal life. That is what Christ brings to the table as he comes to take us and calls us to put our faith in him and his life and his death and his resurrection. It's in that day that our hearts are changed when we put our faith in Christ. We are regenerated by the power of the spirit. We have new desires, new longings. We're gonna talk about more of that in chapter eight. But for now, Paul says the day that Ezekiel looked for has arrived with Christ. And then in verse six, he says this, but now, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code of the letter. In other words, Christians do not serve under the old way of the written code of the Mosaic law. Christian, you are no longer bound to the law. You belong to Christ. Now, I'm gonna answer some Q and A. I brought the questions myself. <laughs> we are gonna talk a lot about the spirit coming up, but I wanna make sure we understand what Pastor Josh is saying. If you have more questions than what I ask here, you can ask me later. But let me just offer some that perhaps you were asking as you were thinking through this. First, do Christians obey the 10 Commandments? We've talked about them not being under the law anymore. What does that mean about the 10 Commandments? Now, you know that some Christians, they, they break down the law into those three categories, the civil, ceremonial, and the moral. And many say that we, we no longer are under the civil and ceremonial laws that Israel was. We're not sacrificing our pets for our sins or anything, but no, we we are under those moral laws, specifically talking about the Ten Commandments. So they say Christians are no longer under those, but they are under at least the Ten Commandments. Now, I take it that Paul says something more significant here and elsewhere. I believe Paul says the Mosaic Law, all of it, was part of another covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, with that Mosaic Law that was given to Israel. Israel. And we are no longer under the Mosaic law, including the Ten Commandments. Now, hang tight. I'm coming back to that. Second question, what do Christians obey then? Because this is where some people go. Well, I guess Christians don't have to obey. They can live how they want. They can sort of express themselves as freedom in Christ. But we know that freedom in Christ is not freedom from Christ. And love for Christ is expressed through obedience, that is throughout the New Testament. In fact, in Galatians 6 two, I, I think that we get a vision of what it is that we find as a law as Christians. We too have a law, it is the law of Christ. We are told to bear one another's burdens and so to fulfill the law of Christ in Galatians 6 two. And then in 1 Corinthians 9, 21, it too speaks of the law of Christ. I think that is being the law of the new covenant that has arrived with Jesus. Third question, what is the law of Christ even well first corinthians seven nineteen we find that Paul tells Christians to keep commandments, the commandments of god now that 's plural, so I take that to mean that there are many commandments. so what are the commandments? Well, you remember that Jesus himself, when he was raised from the dead, he speaks to the disciples in his last words in matthew twenty eight nineteen and he tells them, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the triune God, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. So Jesus says, I am the locus of, of revelation. I am the one that you look to for authoritative teaching. So I, I understand, as we look to the nature of who Christ is, that the law of Christ centers on following Jesus' example and his teachings, as well as the teachings of his apostles that he sent with his authority. Those teachings center around what it looks like to live the Spirit-filled life in Christ. Fourth, did you just say we don't have to follow the Ten Commandments anymore? Well, the New Testament addresses nine of these Ten Commandments. So, yeah, you need to follow the, the Ten Commandments. Now, you might say, well, which one doesn't it speak to? Well, it's the Sabbath. The Sabbath, which was a sign of God's covenant with Israel, which the New Testament nowhere says that we are called to practice. Uh, In fact, uh, Sabbath is is different than Sunday. Some people call like Sunday Sabbath, but Sabbath was for rest. Uh, It was for the people of Israel. Sabbath uh, uh, is not the same as what we do on Sundays where we worship, which is a practice of the New Testament church. Uh, That is distinct and different from what we find in the Sabbath. So I, I take it there that what God speaks of when He speaks of the Ten Commandments, we are called to all of it. But understanding that the Sabbath was fulfilled in Christ, that we have entered His rest by faith. Now, First John three nineteen also clarifies what this law is. There He says, and this is His commandment, being Jesus's, that we believe in the name of His Son Jesus Christ and love one another just as He has commanded us. And that was back in John thirteen thirty four to thirty five. Of course, again, Galatians six two also says that we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So if you're wondering, like, what does it look like to obey the law of Christ, a good place to start would be just studying those 59 one another's of the New Testament. Go through and look them up and say, what is it that God is calling us to do as we one another with one another? In other words, those laws are very communal often. We are to gather together, as Hebrews 10 says. We are to make sure that we are bearing the the burdens of others, as Galatians 6. If we really wanna be spiritual people according to 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, then we need to practice those intelligible gifts that build up the church and not ourselves. That's the way that we show a love of Christ. Fifth, are you saying that we follow the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law? Have, y- have y'all heard this before? Like, you know, I, they're following the, the letter of law, not the spirit of the law. Uh, sometimes people use it this way, and here's what I mean, because I think there's a right way to say that in a wrong way. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, you know, I know the speed limit's 75, but I drive 80 because we know the spirit of the law is 80 because cops don't pull me over. And so then we start to sort of work back into the Bible. And we say, you know, the Bible says not to like, you know, be dishonorable with your spouse, not to cheat on them, not to be involved in sexual sin. Uh, But you know, the spirit of the law is Jesus wants me to be happy. And so I go with the spirit, not the letter of the law. And so then that justifies like sinning against God's clear teaching in the Word. Catch this, that is not the spirit that Jesus is talking about. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. The spirit of Christ draws you to look to God's Word, to find life in it, to want to want what Jesus wants, even when you don't want it, trusting that that's what's best for you. So this is not a kind of teaching that says anything goes. Instead, what we find often is Christ, is there's an escalation of the calling in Christ that is only less possible without the spirit of Christ that comes through putting faith in Jesus. Six, are you saying the Old Testament doesn't matter? No way, Jose. See, Paul told Timothy he needed the Old Testament scriptures. Remember 2 Timothy 3? Now let me give you a couple of reasons why we need the Old Testament. Uh, other than the fact that they are the inspired word of God. First, the New Testament assumes knowledge of the Old Testament is fundamental. When you're reading through the New Testament, if you want to understand it, it is expecting you to have some knowledge of the Old Testament. So for instance, when the Old Testament talks about sexual sin, a lot of times they don't stop to tell you about every sexual sin that they could imagine. No, they sort of just assume that you understand a knowledge of what sexual sin is. Well, how do we know that? Well, not just culturally, culture is kind of mixed up, right? It's not always one-to-one with God's law. No, it's understanding like Leviticus has a lot to say about what it looks like to have faithful marital relationships. It assumes that when you're reading the New Testament. And second, the Old Testament is preparing us to understand who Christ is. If you want to understand Jesus, it's going to be hard for you to understand Jesus if you don't understand the Old Testament. That's why so often you hear weird questions coming out like, why did Jesus have to die? Well, That doesn't make sense unless you understand the need of a sacrifice to atone for sin and make us right with God, which comes from an Old Testament teaching of the sacrificial system. You know, what is significant about Jesus' death and resurrection is what the Old Testament teaches us and prepares us for understanding it when Christ arrives. In fact, Old Testament points to Christ and then Christ shows up and he explains what the Old Testament said about him. Andy Stanley recently said in a tweet, the Christian faith doesn't rise and fall on the accuracy of 66 ancient documents. It rises and falls on the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. Now the problem with that is, that statement is that the resurrected Jesus in Luke 24 immediately, hear this, immediately, he's been raised from the dead. He doesn't say like, here, real quick, uh, let me tell you, I'm raised from the dead, and let me explain what that means. No, instead, he takes him immediately to the Old Testament, beginning with Moses and the prophets, and shows them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. See, the Spirit of God points us to the scriptures so that we can see Christ more clearly, even when he is standing before us. So if you're a non-Christian, m- maybe you've misunderstood that Christianity is all about being bound by rules that deny the things that you love. The reality is, is that that thought demonstrates the fact that you have a heart that is far from God that doesn't understand that God loves you, that he has sent Christ who has died for you, who has come to renew and restore you so that you can want the things you want to want. The things that you love are the very things that are leading, leading to your sorrow and death. So if you haven't put your faith in Christ this morning, God has sent his son to give you eternal life, to save you from just wrath, and give you a future and a hope. You can be fruitful in this life and in the life to come if you put your faith in Him. If you haven't done that, don't leave without talking to me or another Christian today about how you too can become part of the people of God. Those who are fruitful under life, not fruitful under death. Well, at this time, what I want to do is I want to pray for us, and then we're going to take communion together. Let's pray.